Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When I hear students say, well, you know, history is written by the winners, I know that they think they are being sophisticated, cynical, and smart. What I hear, however, when they say that, is that my work is cut out for me because they clearly don't know the first thing about Civil War history, the dominant narratives of which were most emphatically written by the losers for most of the century and a half after the war. Why was that? And is it finally changing? We'll get a transatlantic view of this question from Professor Robert J. Cook of the University of Sussex and the author of Civil War Memories, Contesting the Past in the United States Since 1865. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters 
Field Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not on the campus of East Carolina University, home of the top 10 nationally ranked baseball team Pirates, but not speaking for the university, even though I'm not there tonight, uh, speaking only for myself, as my guest will also do in a few moments. It is May of 2018, a beautiful evening here in North Carolina. College baseball is being played down in Wilmington, where the Pirates are losing two to nothing in the third or fourth inning, but I'm sure they'll come back. The semester is over. Summer school has not yet started. It's a quiet time of year. I've been getting ready for uh, fall courses. Had an interesting experience proposing to teach a uh, an independent study class for two graduate students who, who needed a, a class on a particular topic. And uh, we agreed we would do a reading course on uh, Civil War monuments and memory, much related to the, the topic we'll be discussing tonight. In the old days, one would simply tell the department chair, I'm doing an independent study with students A and B, and the chair says, fine, put it in the catalog, and there it goes. It, it, it's a course. But ever since the scandal at our neighbors at Chapel Hill, when uh, someone abused that and gave hundreds of independent study courses to athletes and then didn't require any work from them, just gave them aids, now when you want to have such a course, you have to fill out a lot of paperwork explaining what the course is about, including defining the learning outcomes, the, the most terrifying sort of educational jargon that a professor can hear. And I filled in just some random educational gobbledygook for the learning outcomes, and my request to have uh, independent study courses was rejected because I didn't have valid learning outcomes. So I went back and looked at what I was supposed to do and actually defined more closely what I expected the students to get out of the course. And to my great surprise, uh, it will actually be a better class now because I've thought more carefully about the, the learning outcomes and what it is I'm really trying to get them to learn in this reading course, not just uh, just a bunch of books. So uh, once in a while, the, the educational juggernaut accidentally, I think, does something right. I uh, thought I would mention that partly I can once again uh, make fun of our colleagues at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for their cheating scandal of several years ago. Uh, my younger daughter, Maria, will be graduating from Chapel Hill this weekend, so it's the last time I can talk trash to her about her school while she's there. Uh, it won't stop when we're done, I'm sure, but uh, congratulations to her on, on finishing that four-year uh, stint in doing it in four years and without incurring any debt. Well done. Back here at Civil War land, it is also spring, which means time for the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours trip, uh, annual tour of battlefield sites in Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, the tour called This Hallowed Ground. If you've never gone on this, I highly recommend it. This year's uh, version for May is sold out. I think the June one is also sold out. I'm only leading the May one. Uh, Jack Mountcastle, who's been a guest on the show, former chief of military history for the U.S. Army, is, is one of the other people who leads these tours. He's an excellent guide. 
if you can go on one of these with Jack or with me, it, you will not regret it. They are really interesting. And I am, even though I've done the tour with essentially the, the similar, not identical, but similar uh, itinerary every year for six years now, I, I'm just all getting tingly ready to do this again and see these places and talk to a new group of people. Uh, this year's guests come from all over the country and from the United Kingdom as well. Uh, it's an international clientele that are served. It's really going to be a, uh, an interesting and, uh, and fun experience. I highly recommend it. Uh, one more comment on battlefield touring before we jump into our show tonight. The Civil War Trust uh, that many of you have contributed to over the years uh, or given money to Civil War Talk Radio for me to pass on to the Civil War Trust announced this past week they are changing their name to American Battlefield Trust. They've been experiencing mission creep. They've started preserving Revolutionary War and War of 1812 battlefields as well as Civil War battlefields. And now to add that to their mission officially, they are they still have the Civil War Trust subgroup of the Battlefield Trust. I don't think it will hurt them any, but interesting to see how uh, that is a, a growth industry. Here on Oxford Road, uh, Civil War Talk Radio Headquarters is now engaged in the Kitchen Preservation uh, Trust as we are renovating the kitchen. Many of the appliances have stopped working. One of the uh, double, half the double oven, the garbage disposal, uh, the other things are falling apart or leaking. So we finally bit the bullet and uh, if you donate to the Civil War Talk Radio book fund that just might get diverted to the Civil War Talk Radio kitchen fund in the weeks ahead. You can donate there by going to impedimentsofwar.org online click on the donate button and I want to thank everyone uh, who responded to my call a few weeks ago asking either for a token donation or more importantly for your suggestions and support and I really appreciate the excellent ideas a number of you sent in for future guests on the show you'll be able to hear many of them as this season winds to an end we'll start up again in the fall but your your kind words and suggestions for new uh, show topics are, are extremely welcome and much appreciated among those new topics next week Tom Huntington will be back on the show he is writing about soldiers from the state of Maine who fought at Gettysburg. There won't be a show on the 23rd of May. I'll be on the road with this hallowed ground, the historical tours of Stephen Ambrose. But we'll be back the end of the month, May 30th, 2018. Kate Major has edited uh, the classic work by John E. Washington called They Knew Lincoln, and she's done other Civil War writing. We'll talk with her and more things in June. But let's move on and talk to tonight's guest, who comes to us uh, via the miracle of Skype from the University of Sussex in England, uh, Professor Robert J. Cook, Professor of American History. He's the author of Civil War Memories, Contesting the Past in the United States Since 1865. Uh, Professor Cook, are you there? I am here, Jerry. Good to speak to you. You too. Thank you so much. I it I recognize it's the middle of the night where you are, uh, so thank you so much for being for bending your schedule to make this possible. <laughs> I'm still awake. That's the main thing. 
Very good. Uh, so your your day job uh, is uh, teaching American history at, at University of, of Sussex. What? Uh, just a general question: How did you come about this uh, this particular interest uh, uh, for your academic uh, focus? Uh, my interest in uh, the memory of the American Civil War. Sure. Um, it goes back. Um, quite a long way when I was teaching at the University of Sheffield um, uh, in Yorkshire. Um, my colleague, um, when I arrived there, my uh, senior colleague, Richard Carwardine, who I think has been on our uh, show. Uh, yes, good before, friend. Um, he had cornered the market in Civil War related courses. So I put on a, uh, a course on uh, the civil rights movement uh, in, in the United States in the 1950s and 1960s and um, I tried to think about ways I could um, keep one toe in the in the Civil War um, and what I what I decided to do was to um, do some research on the Civil War centennial of the 1960s which intersected uh, with the civil rights movement so that's kind of how I got interested in Civil War memory and I ended up writing a book about the, the Civil War centennial a few years ago well, the, uh, and, and since then, I've, uh, sorry, uh, Jerry, and since then I've uh, become um, more interested in Civil War memory, taking interest back into the uh, back into the 19th century, um, inspired by David Blight's uh, fantastic book, uh, uh, Race and Reunion. So, um, so yeah, it, uh, but but my original interest in Civil War memory goes back quite a long way. Well, the. Uh, it, it, as you correctly note, Richard Carradine has been on this uh, program, I, I think, twice, and is uh, author of one of the, the great books of the 21st century on Abraham Lincoln, and uh, just uh, a delightful person as well. Uh, your your book here, I want to say this before anything else, from pages 13 to 18 is one of the most concise and complete and, and really effective summaries of the entire Civil War that I think I may have ever read. Uh, it, if if uh, you need to introduce someone to the essential points of the war in just a few pages, uh, listeners, if you have a friend who doesn't get it uh, and you just want to show them something, there are, there are five really good pages of, of summary. Uh, so that, that struck me right off the bat, how how, uh, how well you compress that. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jerry. I felt um, when I was writing the book that it was important to, um, well, I, I felt that I couldn't assume that everybody who was reading the book would know about the war itself. So I felt there was a need just to um, just to spend a few pages um, detailing the, uh, the, you know, the key events and developments of the war itself in order to make sense of the uh, remembrance and commemoration that comes afterwards. I mean, that's one of the challenges that every historian faces is trying to gauge the audience, figure out how much to tell them. Uh, if you're writing for an audience of Civil War uh, students or enthusiasts, you can assume they may already know what a brigade is or uh, sure. what the Western theater is. And, and for other audiences, you can't do that. But you can also go the other direction and, and spend too much time going on about stuff that your audience knows and, and uh, it's tough to hit it right on the mark uh, so the 
the question of Civil War memory has been hot uh, for a while now. Really, it's been 20 years that it since it, it rose up and began to become now almost the dominant topic in Civil War scholarship. Uh, we are already at our first break. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to ask you, uh, Robert, about the uh, the, the strands of memory, the different uh, ways that Americans have traditionally thought about the Civil War, and then we can uh, discuss them individually as we go. But we'll come back and do that in just a moment with my guest tonight, Professor Robert J. Cook, author of Civil War Memories, Contesting the Past in the United States Since 1865. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips is an insider's glimpse at a life from a psychological perspective. It's a look at what matters to us. Why do we laugh? How do we cope with stress? Are men and women really that different? What is it about our relationships? How are they formed? How they work out? And why they sometimes don't? Every week is something new to engage you. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Robert J. Cook, author of Civil War Memories, Contesting the Past in the United States Since 1865. Uh, Robert, you, you use... 
you talk about the four strands of uh, memory, four different narratives that have influenced Civil War memory uh, that run through the book that, that seem like an organizing principle. Could you share those with us, give, give the listeners an idea how you approach this? Sure. Um, you mentioned in your intro, quite mm-hmm. rightly, that um, in the case of the American Civil War, um, the the victors did not actually write the history of the war itself, or they did not end up writing the, the history of the, the war. Um, however, in the late 1860s and early 1870s, uh, there was a very robust unionist uh, strain of Civil War memory, which we could label um, the War of the Rebellion narrative, which uh, which really lauded um, the Civil War as a patriotic people's war, which was fought primarily by uh, courageous citizen soldiers uh, from the North um, who were motivated to put down uh, a nefarious uh, secession conspiracy, a nefarious rebellion against what they regarded as the best government on earth. And it's worth pointing out uh, in these fractious times that uh, Union soldiers um, wrote and spoke um, repeatedly not only about the significance of the Union, but also about the importance of government and saving saving the government. So. Um, that, that there is that um, unionist that very initially it's a very robust unionist memory uh, of the war, and then there is a secondary strand initially a secondary strand really of um, w- w- what I've labelled an emancipationist uh, memory. Um, that labelling is not um, unique to me. I hasten to add, but that's a that's a, a memory of the war that prioritises um, the conflict. Uh, as a war that resulted in the destruction uh, of slavery. And it's worth pointing out that many Union veterans themselves believed that that was one of the two principal accomplishments of the war, um, that they had fought not only to save the Union, but in so doing, they had also destroyed slavery, which um, most of them uh, regarded as the fount of uh, rebellion, the fount of um, secession and rebellion. So we have a unionist uh, strand, an emancipationist strand, which um, by the late 19th century uh, is nurtured primarily by, and on into the 20th century, nurtured primarily by African Americans. Frederick Douglass is a very good example of, uh, uh, of, of that. Um, and then the two other strands, um, I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with the, uh, the principal uh, southern strain of Civil War memory, the lost cause uh, memory of the Civil War, um, which is constructed during the, uh, from the late 1860s onwards, really. Uh, and it's a memory of the Civil War that uh, justified Southern secession, um, denied the, um, or un- certainly downplayed the significance of slavery, and defending slavery in the coming of the Civil War. Um, intended uh, that uh, the South had lost the war primarily because of the because the, uh, the North had the uh, the bigger battalions um, had, had the industry, um, and then finally and very very importantly, the fourth strand uh, is a reconciliatory, very powerful strain of uh, Civil War memory, 
which uh, look back on the Civil War by the end of the 19th century uh, as uh, uh, a brother's war. It looks, looks upon the war as a, as a family quarrel fought by courageous American men, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily American men, uh, principled on both sides. Uh, and it was uh, a, a strain of memory which, uh, which was essentially a consensual strain of memory and, and underpinned the, the rise of the United States to great power status uh, in the 1890s and, uh, and, and, and onwards. So those are my four um, organizing uh, strains of memory that I discuss in the first part of the book. Now, the, 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 everyone listening to the show is familiar, certainly, with the concept of the lost cause. But I, I want to ask about the, the Unionist uh, strand. I was given a, a set of the Nicolay and Hay 10-volume Abraham Lincoln biography uh, several years ago uh, as a gift. It was a very generous gift. And have been reading them every now and then. And it is just a dashing, a, a bracing uh, a unionist. Uh, I can't think of, of just right the, what the right word is, but uh, Nicolay and Hay, Lincoln's secretaries, are unionist to the core, and they're writing in the 1890s. Mm -hmm. uh, but they are making no no mistake about who were the good guys and the bad guys in this war of patriots against traitors, and. It goes, it's so much against the grain of the reconciliationist view or the view that dominated through the 20th century that it's really quite uh, astonishing to read it. So my question to you is, how did that, that robust, as you called it, that robust unionist view disappear so completely? What happened to it? It's a great question, and I think there's a lot more work that needs to be, uh, uh, needs to be done on it. Um, my own feeling is that... Uh, the unionist memory dies out really with uh, with the veterans themselves. Um, they play such a key role in in constructing the the unionist um, memory that uh, uh, as they as they begin to die out and uh, the majority of them are, are gone by the certainly by the second decade of the twentieth century, um, that that memory is replaced by a much more purposeful. For the times, a much more purposeful, consensual, reconciliatory uh, memory, which at least um, uh, uh, at least concedes that um, northern victory was a good thing for the United States. It laid the foundations for um, America's rise to great power status um, in the modern um, era. And of course, um, the vast majority of Union veterans buy into. Um, that element of reconciliatory uh, memory, they, they they are willing to um, uh, they are willing to buy into it as long as um, they feel able to trust um, uh, the former rebels. And I think the key event here is the Spanish American War of 1898, um, mm -hmm. in which um, a handful of uh, uh, rather elderly Confederate uh, generals. Um, volunteer to fight for the United States. And I think this is an important event because um, many of these Union veterans who hitherto have been uh, determined to, uh, or very reluctant to concede uh, that uh, the former rebels can be trusted, 
uh, as uh, as uh, compatriots. I think they see this as a signal that um, um, at last um, white Southerners um, are willing to um, uh, signal their loyalty uh, to the United States, and it's that loyalty which they which these Union veterans have suspected for for so long. But I think uh, I, I I think the uh, the decision of, of, the, of these Confederate generals, and we're only talking about uh, one or two of them, um, yes, plays an, is, is an important symbolic moment in, the, in, the, in this transition from a <clears throat> unionist memory um, to a, a, a dominant reconciliatory one, at least on the national level. I, I thought an interesting observation you make is that the, uh, the culture changes, the way people remember the war, that in, in the first decades after the war, much of the writing about the war discusses battles and campaigns from the viewpoint of the men who led them. Much of it's written by the men who led them, yeah. and they're they're quarreling about who did what and who's to blame for what. But by the end of the century, you've got people like Ambrose Bierce and Stephen Crane writing a very unromanticized view from the common soldier's point of view, and it seems it's much easier for Northern veterans to reconcile with Southern veterans as veterans that sharing you know seeing each other just as soldiers uh and that this is much a much more common uh you know cultural lens at the time than it was earlier i thought that was quite interesting yes i mean i think uh, uh a recognition of, of sort of mutual courage on, on on both sides um plays an important role in um in in the reconciliation process and it is a process i think and it's a it's a it's a very complex and, and and fraught process, very uneven one, and it's 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 not complete by any means uh, at the end of the 19th century. And and I think as long as there are still Union veterans alive, it's it's and, and Confederate veterans too, um, it's never completely um, it, it, it it's never totally complete. Um, but I think by by the uh, by 1900, the majority of Americans, North and South, are are willing to buy into. Um, key elements of the, this reconciliatory strain of uh, memory. But there are important holdouts. Uh, a lot of prisoners mm-hmm. of war, for example, retained mm-hmm. uh, their hatred of, the, uh, uh, of, 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 of their former enemies um, until the day they died. And, and I'm absolutely certain that um, un- most Union and uh, Southern uh, veterans, Confederate veterans, remain convinced that they had fought on the right side uh, mm-hmm. of, the, of the Civil War until they died as well. And of course, one other group that holds out are, are African Americans who Indeed. hold the, the emancipationist view. Uh, you pointed out some uh, veterans cling to that for some time. The the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic, the mm-hmm. great Union uh, Veterans Organization, has integrated posts for the most part. Barbara Gannon's book is is very good on that. Uh, but but that cause also fails. Uh, you mentioned the the, the Lodge uh, elections bill. Uh, Charles Calhoun, an old colleague of mine, yes. uh, his book on conceiving the new republic, the, the Republican Party in the late 19th century, just tells a tragic story of how that the Republicans almost got an elections bill through that would have protected black voting rights in the South. But um, they fail, and that seems to me the end of the emancipationist uh, uh, strand. 
Uh, yes, that, that, that's another important moment, I think, at the beginning of, at the, beginning of the 1890s. The Republican Party itself is an important, um, indeed, it's a principal carrier of unionist memory through the 1870s 80, uh, and 1880s. Uh, and the fragile promise of union military victory is, um, is, 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 is vitally important here. And the Republicans um, are still trying to enforce 15th uh, Amendment rights, um, but in large part because they're, um, they're, they're worried about uh, the fact that uh, Southern Democrats are suppressing the black vote. And uh, mm-hmm. so we're looking at the emergence of um, what became known as the Solid South um, here. Um, but in, in 1891, the, uh, the, the, the Lodge bill, uh, federal elections bill, is finally defeated in the Senate uh, with the assistance of uh, a handful of far western uh, Republicans. And crucially after this, I think the Republican leadership decides it's just not worth uh, pushing um, uh, black voting rights enforcement any longer. And this is a, another key moment, I think, in the shift from a unionist from that unionist strand of memory to a more reconciliatory one. Um, William McKinley, um, President McKinley, he plays a critical role here. He goes down, uh, he goes down to Atlanta uh, at the end of 1898, um, uh, around the time of the Spanish-American War and the, uh, um, the involvement with the Philippines. Uh, and it's at this moment that he tells Southerners that it is time for the federal government to um, accept responsibility for the care uh, of the uh, Confederate dead, um, and this is a, again a very important symbolic moment in the in the shift from a unionist memory, because obviously McKinley himself was a, a former union officer. Shift from from unionist memory to a, to a more consensual uh, memory of the war. Uh, I want to change gears and talk about the the lost cause, which again is a familiar phrase to everyone. But you point out that the lost cause itself evolves considerably over time, that the, the lost cause as it was initially presented in the 1860s and 70s is not the same as that of the 1890s. Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, and again, these, these insights are not, um, are not original um, um, insights. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the, the lost cause initially... Southern memory of the war is an it, it's 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 very embittered. Um, it is transmitted, constructed, transmitted um, in large part by uh, former Confederate officers uh, like Jubal Early, for example, who had uh, uh, commanded in Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. Uh, Jubal Early plays a key role in reviving the Southern Historical Society, which had been formed in New Orleans in the late eighteen. 18- 60s, but early in a group of uh, Virginia uh, um, officers, former Confederate officers, play a key role in reviving the Southern Historical Society. They issue, start issuing the Southern Historical Society papers. Um, this this phase of the Lost Cause is um, it's it, it, it's Yankee hating. There's no possibility of any kind of reconciliation here with uh, with a former enemy. Uh, but by the late 1880s, um, and certainly on into the 1890s, um, Southerners, in the wake of the, um, the restoration of home rule um, after 1877, the end of Reconstruction, I think white Southerners become more self-confident. 
less concerned uh, that there is that, that, that there is going to be um, um, you know a repeat of federal military occupation uh, and the lost cause becomes um, more of a public um, celebration uh, of the uh, Confederate war effort. Um, so you see uh, the public display of uh, Confederate battle flags, for example, uh, at the, uh, the, at the uh, dedication ceremony to the huge equestrian statue of Robert E. Lee in Richmond in May of 1890, for example. That's a, that's a good example of the, uh, uh, of the emergence of the Lost Cause as a, uh, as a public celebration uh, of, uh, of the Confederacy. And of course, at this time, not surprisingly, a lot of Northerners are very worried about what's, uh, what's going on. Um, they, they, they're really surprised to, to see what's, ha what's happening. Well, we, we'll take another short break now. We're going to come back and talk more uh, with our guest, Robert J. Cook, author of Civil War Memories, Contesting the Past in the United States Since 1865. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Robert J. Cook, author of Civil War Memories, Contesting the Past in the United States Since 1865. We've been talking about the different ways that Americans conceived of and remembered the Civil War, whether from a unionist point of view as a triumphant vindication of the nation or an emancipationist war to end slavery, or uh, as uh, the lost cause, the, the, the just but overwhelmed effort of the Confederacy to create a separate nation, and of course the, the reconciliationist view that uh, uh, David Blight has written about so uh, strikingly in, in the last 20 years that 
reunites the country with a common view of the war that uh, simply leaves out the politics, leaves out slavery. Robert, in you, you, your book is organized into the, the first half that talks about the 19th century and then the, the modern era. You write about uh, the, the search for a, a continuous search for a usable version of the Civil War, uh, usable politically or culturally by different groups, different people. And you you talk about the things that happened in the early 20th century uh, and, and make the argument uh, that by that it's roughly around 1930, uh, 32 perhaps, that the lost cause has been accepted nationally. It is, it is the, the consensus view that uh, white Americans north and south commonly hold about the war. Indeed, I suppose black Americans uh, having no other, uh, if, if they are not able to read uh, Du Bois or someone else, uh, that's their view too because that's all they're taught. And you suggest that this is the peak of the consensus lost cause uh, in the early 30s. Why, why does it peak then, or why, what starts to bring it down? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question, uh, Jerry. I, I, I think the, the overlapping strains of uh, uh, reconciliatory and lost cause memory, that, those are the two dominant um, <clears throat> strands of memory during the the first certainly the first three uh, probably even four decades of the uh, uh, of the 20th century um, but the the key issue um, is that the civil war remains unfinished business for African uh, Americans and it is the civil rights issue that really uh, begins to um, undermine the dominance of these two uh, strains of uh, memory, uh, particularly, um, we, we we can see it. We can see uh, the the civil rights issue playing a role in the 1930s when Southern Democrats uh, use uh, regional memories of Reconstruction to try to resist uh, what they see as uh, New Deal liberalism, uh, fears that uh, New Deal liberals are trying to undermine. Uh, racial segregation um, in the South, and of course by the 19 um, by the late 1940s, uh, 1950s, um, Southern fears that the federal government is is getting involved in the business of uh, trying to dismantle um, Jim Crow. Uh, this results in um, um, attempts to use uh, Confederate symbols um, during uh, the period of so-called massive resistance. Uh, to the Brown decision during the uh, the mid to late 1950s, so the the Confederate va- battle flag is um, is it is flown by opponents of uh, public school desegregation, uh, and uh, uh, probably one of the key reasons this is the key reason why the Confederate battle flag is 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 so controversial today. It's not it's not just that it represents a pro-slavery um, Confederate government from the 1860s. It's also the fact that uh, the battle flag was flown by the opponents of uh, of the civil rights uh, movement in the 1950s and on into the 1960s. But I'd say it's the it, it, it's basically racial issues that begin to shift, uh, begin to sh- uh, sort of shift the uh, uh, 
uh, the power relationship between these these various strands of memory, and and what is what is basically happening is that um, the Samizdat um, marginal, uh, principally African American emancipationist memory of the war. Hardly any white Americans know that there were uh, that there were black troops fighting for the Union uh, by by nineteen by by 1910, 1920, that's all been forgotten. Uh, but th that memory of, uh, of the Civil War uh, begins to uh, begins to resurface as a consequence of the, the civil rights movement in the 1950s uh, and uh, uh, and the 1960s. So what, what we're seeing here is that the emancipationist memory becomes more, it becomes more useful, it becomes more socially useful. And as a consequence of that, that that previously marginalised memory starts to become um, much more um, much more uh, uh, visible. The you have a chapter titled "Centennial Blues" about the Civil War centennial mm -hmm. and the the coincidence in time between the planning and uh, celebrating of the centennial and the rise and and peak of the civil rights movement. They they happen at exactly the same time, and they interact in very interesting ways. Uh, the The ironies of uh, trying to celebrate, uh, and, and not just commemorate, but literally celebrate a war that killed 700,000 people uh, while denying much of what it was about uh, really shine through. You, you, and you've written entire. You've written in depth about the centennial. What what role does that play? Did, did the centennial play in, in shaping uh, American memory of the war? Uh, well, I think I think the civil rights movement is plays plays a more uh, a more important role. Um, the civil war centennial was um, conceived um, as a means of stealing Americans um, in the fight against communism. Uh, during the Cold War, so it's 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 it, it's planned as a as a as, as a Cold War pageant, really. And the very fact that uh, the uh, Civil War Centennial Commission, this is a federal commission that was set up in in uh, 1957, thought um, that uh, the, uh, the a war that had killed so many Americans could be used uh, in this kind of consensual fashion tells you everything about the um, persistent power of the reconciliatory strain of memory that looking back on the war as a as a brothers uh, as, a, as a brothers war an American family conflict that had laid the foundations for um, for America's um, rise to great power and super power status in the in the 20th century um, but it is undone by um, the the burgeoning civil rights movement uh, in the early 1960s which exposes the, the racism uh, of the of Centennial Commission, which basically um, tried to sideline African-Americans and, and downplay any reference to um, slavery and emancipation and focus um, almost solely on um, military, the military history of the war, because um, inevitably by doing that, um, you, uh, the, the, the Civil War Centennial Commission thought that it could, it could maintain um, unity between northern and, and southern whites and this is during the 1960s. Uh, but uh, what, what happens is that uh, in uh, the spring of 1961 the Civil War Centennial Commission 
made the mistake of um, excluding a black delegate to one of its meetings, <laughs> its annual meetings in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, and uh, um, racial controversy ensued. Uh, the new president, President Kennedy, had to get involved, had to publicly criticize the Civil War Centennial Commission, and uh, the the whole um, the whole commemoration was basically undermined by uh, a, uh, by the struggle for civil rights in the 1960s with African Americans saying civil war is unfinished business it, it was about it was about race and uh, about racial injustice and of course that's precisely the point that Martin Luther King made uh, um, in his great I have a dream speech uh, in uh, uh, in August of 1963 the steps of the Lincoln Memorial you see um, King himself channeling the emancipationist memory of the uh, uh, of the war on that occasion and doing it uh, very very effectively. Let's jump ahead in our few remaining minutes to the uh, sesquicentennial, uh, the 150th anniversary. We do not see the same uh, hoopla that surrounded the centennial. We don't see the same controversy and or even the same interest and. In particular, as you note in the book, very little African-American interest in the Civil War. Uh, in when one goes to sites, it, uh, to battlefields and so on, it looks, anecdotally, I would say that, that the, the black representation is less than that of the general population, not absent altogether, but... Uh, but less so, and uh, then this brings us really to the present. Um, your book opens with the the horrible uh, with the murders in Charleston in 2015 that led to a sea change. One one that I did not think I would live to to see the actual uh, change of heart among those who had embraced the reconciliationist or lost cause view uh, and the removal of Confederate battle flags from sites of public authority like the South Carolina state grounds. Uh, so let me ask you uh, a question I often end with is the uh, Civil War time machine, asking a person where they would go if they could go back in time. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you, put it in the opposite direction, if you could go forward in time 20 years, where will... American or, for that matter, world memory be about the American Civil War? That's a, that's a very difficult uh, question to uh, <laughs> It's an impossible question. <laughs> um, historians ne never very good at predicting the, uh, uh, the, the, the future. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be, uh, in an ideal world, and I know we don't uh, live in one, it would be, it would be nice to think that all this work on uh, Civil War memory would have an impact uh, on um, on Americans um, learning about um, about the war because it seems to me the more one uh, understands how um, memory shifts, how it evolves um, over time, how statues and monuments are not necessarily. Um, uh, things to be regarded as uh, sacrosanct, that they are themselves products of particular power relations uh, in the American past. I would like to think that in 20 years time, 
um, we could have um, a much um, a much um, more inf uh, a better informed, um, less heated debate um, over these Confederate statues and symbols. I mean, it's it it it's important i think to to understand that even in the late uh, 19th century um, many americans um, were um, very worried about the appearance uh, of these confederate statues and the uh, unfurling of the confederate uh, battle flag uh, once again um, a group of patriotic northern women in 1891 condemned these uh, what they called these false shrines uh, to the uh, to the Confederacy, um, and I think an awareness that these kind of debates go right way back into the nineteenth century that they're not simply it's not you know it's not all about political correctness in the present. I think a, a better in, my hope is for a better informed, less heated uh, debate in twenty years' time. Well, one major contribution to that, uh, if that comes about, and and I we devoutly hope it will. Uh, is this book, Civil War Memories, Contesting the Past in the United States Since 1865. It, uh, listeners, you want to get a copy of this. It really is a, a wonderful summary of these debates uh, with a lot of interesting insights. Uh, highly recommended. And uh, Robert, thank you so much for staying up so late and joining us on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you, Jerry. Great pleasure to talk to you. And listeners, as always... Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. <laughs>